Good morning, everyone. How are you? Wow. That's bad. That's okay, though. We're going we're gonna to work on that. Hey, I just want to pass on. Uh, Tim's really sorry he couldn't be here this morning, but there was a Jeff Foxworthy look-alike contest, and he really felt like this was his year. So he had to... He had to pass on it, but uh, I'm glad I could be here with you this morning. And we're at this place in the story where there's a, we're coming into a transition. And the transition is the people of Israel that we've been talking about who've been putting turkey bacon on the throne, which is a false god, instead of real bacon, which is a real god. Instead of doing that, they've been following these false gods, and God finally has said to them, if you want to go and be with them, I'll let you have it. But you've got to realize these false gods will come with other nations, other gods, and other places to live. And so at this transition point, I thought it was important that we hear a story of transition, a story of a life that went through the stages of following the false gods and came out on the other side before we jump into our story today. So I want to welcome my friend Leo to this stage right now. Come on out, bud. Everybody welcome Leo. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Hi, my name is Leo Costilla. I was a non-believer. The fact is I didn't believe in God at all. I did what was important to me, and for me, the most important thing was having money. So I would just work all the time. Then I started to get involved with the gangs and drugs because of the money I could make. But I got caught selling drugs and had served prison time. While I was there, I started to read the Word of God. During that time, I was in prison. I started to believe in God, but when I was released, I went back into the street doing the same thing. This time, my wife turned me in. So for the first time, I prayed, and God gave me a second chance. I didn't go back to jail, and I tried to follow God, but I found it very hard. I couldn't do it. So again, I put the Bible down, pick up the drugs, and again, my wife turned me in. But God had not given up on me. This time, instead of jail time, I was offered a year-long program through the courts. I wasn't going to do it, but a little voice told me to take it. It was during this time, though, that I got locked up for one week for being late for court. I thank God for that now, because during, this, during that week was the first time I really felt God's presence in my life. I knew that Jesus wanted me to serve him. I came out of there thinking differently, but my wife didn't believe me because of the unloving, verbal abuse way I would treat her. My actions spoke louder than words. So my wife finally filed for divorce. I moved out, leaving all my belongings to the house. I would sleep at rest stops, at friends' houses, or stay with relatives. But what I didn't know was that during all this time, my wife had been praying for me. And right before the divorce was final, something happened. I got down on my knees, asked Jesus to forgive me. This was when I realized I had never really accepted Jesus Christ in my heart. So I asked him to take over my life. At that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit come into my life. I had so much peace and felt so different. The minute I got up on my knees, I knew I was changed. I knew I wanted to serve God. I asked Jesus to lead me to a church. One day I passed Parkview and there was a sign, come as you are. The Lord spoke to me, this is the one. I had a pair of shorts, a muscle t-shirts, and all tattoos on my body. 
I hesitated. I saw everyone coming in jeans, t-shirts, no suits. And I said, okay, Lord, this is the church for me. I've been attending Parkview for the last year and a half and was baptized here last April 25th. Mm -hmm. I attended divorce care classes where they helped me understand and work through my past and my abusive childhood. I used to be an angry person. I was rude to everyone, especially my wife and family. Through the Bible teachings here, I learned about the love of Christ. I finally told my ex-wife this and thank her for praying for me all those years. Now I can give her true love and others through Christ. My kids say to me, I love the way you change. I now serve God here, part of the parking ministry team. I get to pray with hurting people and show God love to others every week. Thanks Parkview for accepting me. Thank you Jesus for changing my life and for changing me. God bless everybody. fantastic stuff to see change happen in people's lives. Now, where I want to go and where we are today in the story that we've been working through for the, the past 17 weeks is a place that's kind of in the middle of Leo's story. It's in that place where the consequences of following other gods have found Israel out. And what happens is a king named Nebuchadnezzar, which we can't say that, so we're just going to shorten it to Nebi for the sake of today's message. He and I are close too, so we can do that. Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem in 586 BC, and he deports all of the best and brightest of the tribe of Judah. This is what the text says. It says, he carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000, and only the poorest people of the land were left. Now, we might start feeling sad for them, but realize they knew this was coming. Prophet after prophet has said, if you keep going down this road, bad things are going to happen. It's like a person with acid reflux eating hot wings. You know how this is going to turn out. And so they find themselves in exile in another nation, away from the land that they're promised. Now, for us today, maybe you're, you found yourself and you are in kind of the middle of a situation of exile. You're kind of in the middle of a situation. Maybe you chose it by putting the wrong gods on the throne, or maybe it was chosen by others. But in any circumstance, you're in a dark place. You're in a place where things are going in the direction you don't want them to go. And so for the men we're going to talk about today, they are being moved off a land that God had promised them. And they're being moved away from a people God had promised them they'd always be. So the question really becomes, we can't go back and change things, so what now? What does God do with the situation that we're in now? Are we lost causes? The question is for Daniel... If I'm away from the promised land and I'm no longer with the promised people, then is the promise still good? Does God still care? Is God still good after all that has happened? And maybe that's a question you're asking yourself today. I want to work through that and maybe try and answer it because it's an awkward place to be. It's an awkward place to be not knowing if we're solid in believing that God is good or that God cares. We feel out of our element like we're in a place we're not supposed to be. Kind of like this guy. Not me, that guy. 
You ever found yourself in full field camo in the middle of a metro stop? Yeah, me too. Happens like every other week. It's that awkward feeling of being out of place, not feeling right. And maybe this message finds you in a time of exile where you are not in your element. You are far away from believing the things you used to believe. You've seen the consequences of false gods in your life. Or maybe like Leo, you chose the route of following gods that just didn't pay off. And now you're dealing with the consequences. Reminds me of when I was moving here. My wife and I were moving to Illinois from Ohio. And we were loading up our stuff into this, you know, giant U-Haul truck, like a 26-foot truck. And we had a trailer to put the car on. We had all this stuff together. And my friend and I were going to try and move everything in one night and pack it all into the truck. Well, that wasn't happening. So we started making phone calls. Now, we had just graduated from college, so all of our buddies were college buddies. And college buddies have this propensity for getting involved in trouble at the exact wrong times. So every person we called said, yeah, sure, we can come, we can come. So these five guys show up at our house. Just so happens that before they came, they'd been indulging in, well, let's just say they'd had some adult beverages before they arrived. And I don't know if you've ever tried to move furniture with five college guys who've been drinking, but it's like hurting four-year-olds. Like, here, move that couch. It's just not working. But somehow or another, probably the grace of God did it, we all got our stuff all loaded up onto the truck and we shut the lid. Now, it started to rain at that time, so I'm like, oh my gosh, come on. And these drunk buddies loading furniture. and Okay, if we just make it through tonight, we'll be fine. So we shut the truck about 2 a.m. and we went to go sleep and get ready for the next day. Well, lo and behold, we woke up the next day and overnight, the rain had turned to ice. And the entire parking lot of our apartment complex had iced over, so much so that this 26-foot truck with trailer, with my car on the trailer, had slid sideways into the grass. Now, grass after rain in Ohio is deep, and it's mucky, and it's muddy. So when you try to drive a 26-foot trailer out of mucky grass, do you know what happens? Your wheels sink. And I'm sitting in the cab of this giant truck looking at my friend going, you have got to be kidding me. From the rain to the drunk buddies to the stuck truck, people move every day. Why is this happening to me? And that must have been the question that Daniel and his friends were asking themselves. Because at the time when this happens, when they're deported, Daniel and his buddies are about 13 or 14 years old. So they're not really a part of all the idolatry that's been going on that moves them into this place. So the question for Daniel and his buddies who are thrust into this situation that they don't even belong to be in are two questions. Is God good? And does God care? We're stuck, we're lost. Is God still good? Does God still care? But I believe that Daniel and his friends are going to show us another question that we don't normally think about. Now these guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which I just like to say because it's fun, they are deported and they are taken into the king's custody because they are the best and brightest of the youngest of men. This is what the text says about them. They are young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Just imagine Tom Brady, George Clooney, Steve Jobs, and Albert Einstein all mashed into one person. And this is kind of the description we get of these guys. And it says that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar wants to keep these guys. They are gems, but he wants to change them. Because he doesn't want them going back to their old life. So he changes their names. And when he changes their names, he takes 
control of them. If I change your name, I make you into a different person. If you no longer have a Jewish name, you're no longer a Jewish person. I'm taking you out of that land of promise, out of that place. You're going to become a Babylonian. You're going to stay here with me. And maybe in the time of exile, we feel like we've been so changed we can never go back. That must have been where they were at this moment in time. And I wonder if at that time they start asking these questions. We're so far from home. Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. So is God good? And does God care? They end up serving Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi for short, for 65 years. And in that time, if they weren't asking those two questions before, they definitely are by the end. Because there are three major events that happen that challenge the very nature and idea of God for these men. The first thing that happens is the king has a bad dream. Now back in this time, when kings had bad dreams, bad stuff started to happen. And so they wanted them interpreted. Tell me what this dream means so I can prepare for what's about to happen. So the king, Nebi, had all of these magicians and enchanters who would interpret dreams for him. And so he asked them, he says, come and tell me what my dream means. But I don't trust any of you because you could take this opportunity and tell me something that's totally false just to get in my head. So not only do you have to interpret my dream, you've got to tell me what the dream is without me telling you. So it's basically that game you play where how many fingers am I holding up? You put your hand behind your back. Only this time the stakes are not just that you're wrong. If you get the number wrong, you die. Nebi says, I can't trust you if you can't tell me what my dream is. I tried to figure out a good way to show you what this looked like, and the only thing that kept coming to mind was a clip from, well, from Ghostbusters. Take a look. All right. Think hard. What is it? Circle. Close. But definitely wrong. Okay. All right. Ready? Yeah. All right. What is it? Figure eight. Incredible. That's five for five. You can't see these, can no, you? No, no. You're not cheating me, are you? No, I swear. They're just coming to me. <laughs> okay. Nervous? Yes. I don't like this. You only have 75 more to go. <laughs> Very much like that. The king calls all of his magicians and sorcerers and says, tell me what the dream means. And they say, we can't do that. Nobody can do that. Only the gods can do that, and they're not human. He says, well, then that's fine. Then all of you have to die, because I don't trust any of you. And that means Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of that group. When Daniel hears this, he freaks out, as many of us would. I'm not even supposed to be here. And now I'm a part of this group of people, and we're all going to die. And so he says, it's the text says, Plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel says, I don't know if God is good, and I'm not sure that God still cares, because we're very far away right now. But all I know is that my God can beat up their gods. So if he shows up, then this is going to go well for us. And surely enough, Daniel's God shows up. And Daniel's able to interpret the dream. And he says, here's the dream for you, king. You had a dream of a big statue made out of four different types of material. The fourth represents a kingdom of a mixed group of people. And let me tell you what that kingdom looks like. 
And this is what the text says. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. The translation is, Nebi, you go and bye-bye. Your time is limited here. That's what your dream means. And Daniel and his buddies and all the magicians are saved. Because the king says this, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And he spares all their lives, but it doesn't take them out of exile. They stay in Babylon. So even in the midst of this darkness... God saves their lives, but doesn't take them out of Babylon. He doesn't stop the exile. He doesn't stop the distance. He leaves them there. And as a matter of fact, they get even more involved because of this. And that makes what happens next even harder, because the next story is a story about a furnace. And this is about our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which I've already said I really like saying that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are confronted with an idea because Nebuchadnezzar gets this sort of Kim Kardashian thing going on and he's like, I want to build myself an image. I want people to worship me. And so he builds this golden image and he says, I want everybody to bow down to this as a way of worshiping it. And if they worship that, it's basically them worshiping me because that's what I'm all about. And so he tells his informants and his heralds, and this is what the text says. It says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have heard this before. This whole worshiping of a God that's not the real God. And they know that's what's gotten them to where they are. And so now they have a choice. What are we going to do here when we're separated from our God? Now we're being asked to do this again. And for them, they're like, listen, I don't know what's going to happen next, but we can't, we can't keep doing this. We cannot keep worshiping gods who are not true, even if we're distant, even if we're in this place where we're not even sure that God cares or that God is good. We can't keep doing what we've been doing. They're not having it. And so they don't bow down when the music plays. Well, meanwhile, there is this politically excited group of people. These astrologers are called Magi. If you're familiar with the Christmas story, it's the same kind of guys. And they see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down when the music plays. And so they do what any upright, mature person would do. They tell on them. And they say, but there are some Jews, Nebi, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor the worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, Nebi is furious at this point. And so he goes and he finds these three guys. He says, listen, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will save you from my hand? Now, when we're in the exile, when we're in the darkness, we begin to ask this question. Is there a God who's going to step into this and save me? Is God good? Does God care? In the middle of the place where I'm at right now, is God capable of rescuing me from this? And Nebuchadnezzar asked the same question of them. Who's going to save you from this? Apparently, he's got some short-term memory issues because he doesn't remember the whole dream thing that just happened. But anyway, that's another point. So what's their response? How do they respond to this? He's so angry that he cranks up the temperature of the furnace. He says, crank it up seven times hotter. Now, what you need to know is this isn't the furnace like you have in your house. This is a giant clay oven. 
that is used for melting steel and building things. It may have even been used to build the gold image that they were supposed to bow down and worship to. Chances are the temperatures in there range from 1100 to 1500 degrees Celsius. Translate that into Fahrenheit, 2700 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 1200 degrees hotter than molten lava. He's not getting around here. So if you're facing a furnace, if you're facing a time of exile, if you're facing darkness and things like this, what do you say? What God will save you from this? This is what they say. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves. In this matter, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. This is amazing considering, remember, they're no longer in the land of promise. They've done things that they're not supposed to. They're distant from God. And yet they say, this God, our God, is capable of saving us. They are confident, but they're also realistic. Because then they say, but even if he does not, let's just say it doesn't happen that way. We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Just because we're in exile, just because in the, we're in the darkness, does not mean we're giving up on God stepping in in this moment. So Nebi says, fine, it's your choice. Toss them in. Now the furnace is so hot, the two guys who throw them in actually get burnt up while throwing them in. Now, the next thing that happens is so odd that I'm not even going to try and explain it. I'm just going to read it to you. The text says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, Certainly, your majesty. And I bet they're talking to each other going, Yeah, he was here for that, right? Three guys? Okay, fair enough. And so he says, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods in Nebi's time he's saying there's some supernatural being in the fire with them translation uh oh this is not good and so they say whatever's left to say what own the last thing they could say which is get out of there and they walk out of the furnace 2700 degrees these guys come out and they're like They come out untouched. The text says this. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. You can't go to Cracker Barrel and not come out smelling like fire. These guys were in the furnace for crying out loud. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their own lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own. Even though they were separated from him, even though they were facing death in the most horrific way, even though they weren't quite sure, does God still care, is God still good, they were willing to turn their lives over for one other promise that we're going to find out about very soon. But first, the last story, which is all about lions. Anybody who knows Daniel probably knows Daniel and the lion's den. You can either piece together what that story is all about. But one thing that we miss in this, Daniel was 14 when he came to Babylon. He serves Nebuchadnezzar for 65 years. Nebuchadnezzar dies and a new king takes the throne, a King Darius. So that means at the time of the story when Daniel meets the lions, Daniel is 80 years old. 
He has lived his entire life away from the promise, away from God, in a dark, dark place where he's facing death and execution at every single turn. I imagine he's exhausted. His body has been through it. His soul has been through it. And for us, when we're facing dark times in exile, it just wears us out. There's a moment in time when we get to the point where we're just like, I'm not sure I can take this anymore. But here's Daniel, still living like Daniel lives, being blessed. The scripture says, now Daniel had distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps. He's working in the government by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At 80 years old, in a kingdom he's not even supposed to be in, he becomes the head. And at this, the administrators and satraps, his fellow workers, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. That's interesting. A politician is neither corrupt nor negligent. I would need photo proof of that if I'm anybody. But they realize if we're going to get Daniel, it's not going to be because of a scandal. It's not going to be a Babylonian version of Watergate. That's not how we're going to do this. There's one way that we get to this guy. The text says, finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Let's get him where he's really weak. This God he apparently believes in, the God who sent him to this country in the first place, the God who has saved him from death but never rescued him from us, let's hit him where he hurts. And so they go to King Darius, and apparently King Darius was kind of gullible. And as a king, that's not a good characteristic for you to have. They go to him and they said, you know what? We've been thinking, Darius. You know what would be great? If people prayed to you like you were a god. What do you think? He's like, well, I'd never really thought about that. I've always wanted to be a god. I've always wanted to be a surgeon too, but God is fine. And they said, yeah, here's what we do. We, we make a law. In the next 30 days, everybody in the kingdom has to pray to you. And if they don't, um, hmm... Let's, ooh, let's throw them in a pit filled with hungry lions. That should do it. Now, you've got to understand, too, it's not like everybody had a lion's den at their house. It's not like you had your septic tank and then your lion's den and then your backyard pool. It's, it wasn't like that. This was a very special, very significant kind of punishment reserved for only the worst of folks. To make, it, to make a point. To make an impact. Are you going to pray to the king? I don't know. Do you want to go be eaten by lions? No, then pray to the king. All right. Fair enough. So Daniel hears this, and this is what it says. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. There were two ways to pray in Daniel's time. Most people stood up and prayed with their hands outspread. But when the fertilizer was really hitting the fan, you got down on your knees. So Daniel's in a state of urgent prayer with the windows wide open for all the world to see, knowing that somebody's going to spot him and knowing this means the end for him. He still prayed. And the administrators and satraps said, gotcha. So they go to Darius and they say, Darius, Darius, ooh, Daniel, he's not praying to you. Throw him to the lions. Throw him to the lions. And he says, I, I, I can't change the law. In you go. 
The text says that the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. And I love this. The king, again, such a moron. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. As if he could say, well, just in case, hope things go well down there. I know they're starving lions and all, but maybe something will happen. People normally don't live through that kind of thing. And so one long night passes. The king can't sleep. And Daniel's in a dark pit full of hungry kitties. And the next morning comes and Darius jumps up and puts on his Packers slippers and runs down the hallway and of course, because of course he's a Packers fan. It's in the Hebrew. And he basically looks into the lion's den and shouts, everything okay in there? I would have loved it if Daniel had said, oh, I'm good. How about you? How's the kids? I just spent a whole night in a pit full of hungry lions. What do you think? But instead, Daniel answers, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Don't miss this. Did you hear what Daniel said? He said, An angel shut the mouths of the lions, which means he wasn't alone. Daniel had company in the presence of the growling bellies of the hungry kitties. He was not alone. And so in our exiles, when we're facing darkness, when we're facing the snapping jaws of hungry beasts, as a result of our choices or the choices of someone else, could it be that we're not alone in the middle of all of that? Even at 80, even in a pit of lions, even under a new king, Daniel's still facing the same old stuff and the same old questions had to have surfaced. Is God good? Does God care? And an angel shows up and shuts the mouths of the lions. And maybe in the exile you're in, maybe you need this third question. It's not if God is good. And it's not if God cares. The third question we all need is, is God there? Because the reality is, even if we can't get next to the other two questions because of what's happened, because we've learned to believe that God isn't good and that God doesn't care, if we're willing to suspend that for just a moment and say, maybe God is here, if we're able to do that, God will show us. God will show us himself. And honestly, when God is there, we have a chance to rediscover how God is good. When God is present with us in our exile, in our times of darkness, in our times of suffering, we have a chance to learn again how God is good. And I know what you're saying, but Casey, I've been in exile for so long, you don't understand. Well, Daniel does. He was there for 65 years plus. He was 80 years old and on his 80-year-old creaking knees, bowed before God, knowing he was going to get chucked to the lions, asking these two questions, is God good? Does God care? And what happened was God showed up and said, I don't know if you believe those two, but you can believe that I'm here. And in the middle of the darkest time in Daniel's life, he gets a vision. And that vision is key for us in our exile today. And this is in chapter 7. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he was given authority, glory, dominion, and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. 
And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In the middle of the darkness, God spoke to Daniel and said, Nebuchadnezzar will rot and pass away. Darius will be dethroned and will decompose. And for us today, he says, your exile may go on for a while. It may go on forever. But you need to know something. A kingdom is coming. A new kingdom that stomps on furnaces that hungry lions can't overcome, that dream interpreters can't even deal with. A new kingdom is coming that is going to be present with you in the middle of your exile. What Daniel got to see in the darkest moment was the prophecy about Jesus. His kingdom came with authority and dominion and power so that no darkness could ever overcome us again. One day... God will step into the mess, will become a human being, and will stand beside people in exile and say, there is another way through. Maybe you don't believe that God is good. Maybe you don't believe that God cares. But Jesus stood among them and said, but God is here. And we know this because of what's said about him. At the beginning of Matthew, it says, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God will be present with us. God steps into the exile through Jesus. It says in John, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He stepped into the darkness with us. And the promise is that one day that stepping in will be complete and perfect. In Revelation it says, look, God's dwelling place is now with the people and he will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away because the greatest king who ever lived stepped into the shoes of ordinary people. We can wipe away the tears of our exile and walk through the midst of it knowing we don't have to believe that God is good and we don't have to believe that God cares. But if we take the moment to believe that God is actually here, we will find out once again why he's good and how he cares. There's a, there's a tree. And it grows mostly in the Yellowstone National Forest, but it's called a lodgepole pine tree. This is what it looks like. It's a beautiful tree. Tall, thin, bright green needles. Very odd-looking cones. Now, if you know anything about pine trees, and if you don't, then we all get to learn something today. When a pine tree's cones fall they open up and there are seeds inside. And those seeds come out and plant and grow new trees. But there's a difference between a typical pine tree and a lodgepole pine. And the reason is, is that the cones just fall off and lay there. It's kind of a lazy pine, uh, pine tree, if you ask me. Could actually try a little harder, if you ask me. But these cones fall off and lay on the ground and they never open up. and Their seeds never come out. Well, that's not true. They only open up and the seeds only come out when they're exposed to intense heat. So when there is a forest fire and all the trees in the forest are wiped out, the heat of the flames causes these cones to crack open and the seeds plant. And so a forest that's ravaged by a fire, when it starts to regrow, the first life you see are lodgepole pine trees. These brilliant shoots of life growing up in the midst of a place where there was only death. The reality is, maybe we don't understand in the midst of the exile we're in if, why God is good. And maybe we don't understand how he could possibly care for us through what we're going through. But God is present with us and maybe he's present with us to keep us as we walk so that we know that the heat of this situation is meant to crack us open and plant seeds of new life. That new life wouldn't have come without 
the exile. The new life wouldn't have come without us finding out how God is good in the darkest of times. And we can do that. And we have a promise that keeps us in that. And that promise is from Psalm 23. And it says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. So we go to communion. I, look, I don't, I don't know. I mean, sometimes when we talk and teach on different passages, we kind of think about where people are. And maybe you came in and, you, and you're not in exile. I mean, things are going really well in your life and you're clicking, you're connected with God. And, and our, man, just, if that's you, celebrate that. Don't ever let that go. And don't ever let the gratitude for that disappear. And so if that's you, that's great. But if you are in exile, if you are in darkness, I got to tell you that you're not alone. I mean, all of us have come to these places where we feel like we have to ask those questions. Is God good? Does God care? Maybe even ask that third one too. Is God here? I'm having trouble seeing him in this. Because Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these guys were faced with that for a lot of their life. And there are people in this room who have been faced with that for a lot of their life. The people in this room have been faced with that this week. I've been faced with that this week. And so it's hard because sometimes we lose sight. Israel in exile loses sight of God. Us in exile, we lose sight of God and whether God can be good or whether God can care or whether God is present. And so I wonder if, if God realized we needed some way to remember that. We needed some way to be reminded that, yes, I am good and I am caring and I am present. And I wonder if that's why he, he thought of this thing called Communion this juice and this bread, these very tangible, touchable, tasteable reminders that yes, I am good and yes, I care. And yes, I'm there. As a matter of fact, these things will remind you, not only am I there in some kind of supernatural way, I was there literally in the flesh through Jesus in the midst of the circumstances that you face. I was there. So whenever you feel like you're in exile, whenever you feel lost and can't see me, Here's the body, and here's the blood. Here's the bread, and here's the juice. Let them remind you every time, all the time, I am with you. As the trays come across, there are two cups, bread in the bottom, juice in the top. Take both of them out, hold them. We'll take communion together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview to take communion with us. If you believe in Jesus, we welcome you to engage in this with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you teach us through the lives of these four special men. And I pray that you would remind us that you do care and you are good and that you are present. And God, however we need to see that, would you bring yourself to the front of our mind? And and maybe in this moment of eating this bread and this drinking this cup, we are reminded most definitely that you are good and your love endures forever. Thank you so much for this time. Help us to think and meditate on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.